positive feedback loop. Hi, welcome to Positive Feedback Loop. This is Luis. Stephanie is here. Hola, and Brian. This is, this is our wonderful guest, Brian. Thank you. Here from Follow the Honey to talk a little bit about his product and tell us a little bit about bees and the wonderful world that is beekeeping and bee products. Um, so just a recap for, for new listeners. Uh, this is Positive Feedback Loop, our show. We go into detail on topics that we find interesting and just learn a little bit about each other with each other. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. Let's begin. Uh, so, Brian, tell us a little bit about your your service here. Uh, follow the honey, correct? Sure. Uh, yes, follow the honey. First of all, I'm I'm. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. I uh, have not ever been on a podcast. So oh, it's a pleasure having you. Great popping the bubble. You are our second guest ever. Uh, our first guest was on our first episode, and he was there for I think like what ten minutes. Yep. Nick. No, Nick. Nick Wong, oh. uh, exemplary, well, exemplary Wong. first guest. I've yes. heard of that guy. So you, ha- <laughs> so you have to live up to his standard. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> I, I mean, I did bring honey with me, so I think yeah, I think yeah. he's waiting he already. Can do that? Yeah. No, he can you nothing. smell it yet? I, I guess I can. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, follow the honey. Um, was founded in 2006, and actually we have a brick and mortar in Harvard Square. Um, but the goal was, I mean, from the outset to connect beekeepers on the margins um, from around the world to markets where people can pay for the honey and the beautiful honey it is. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 see, I'm looking at it right now. It's gorgeous. You have an interesting array of colors. You have a bl- all the way from black honey to golden honey. Yeah. So, and it's fantastic. It so, looks like um, maple, the maple syrup testers, you know, where they go from dark to light. Yeah, well, if, if you want to mix up your waffles sometime, I would say try, try some try actually some honey instead of that's the, I actually prefer honey on my pancakes to syrup. Yeah, and we've got hmm. many many uh, varieties of honey, and and so basically the variety of honey and the reason they're different colors and different flavors is that it is derived from the nectar source which the bees are foraging from, right? So. You're only limited in variation by the variations of the of the flora in, in an area where bees are foraging. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's a fascinating world. Um, we have a, a this light honey is is a is a wildflower from from Barrie, Massachusetts. Wow. And our beekeeper George O'Neill has been with Fall the Honey since 2011 when we opened our our shop in Harvard Square at 1132 Mass Ave. Um, so actually, if since I have the honey here, I think it would be appropriate um, to try some. Oh, well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we should describe what we're seeing as we as we taste it. So Brian is going for this beautiful golden colored honey. It's very yellow, looks like flax colored even. Yeah, and, and some might call it the sunshine. Oh, sunshine, I like I, it. I've heard it called sunshine, but this is a multifloral. Um, okay. So, so what does multifloral mean? So multifloral as opposed to monofloral. Um, Multifloral, uh, the bees are foraging from many different uh, plants flowers, yeah. and flowers. Um, monoflorals, the bees are foraging predominantly from from one nectar source. Mm-hmm. So one tree or one plant and the flower of that. Um, so yeah, go ahead and taste that. So we're tasting this. And it's amazing how useful um, bees are in general. I mean, they, they have been wow. fantastically important for the development of agriculture throughout history. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean... Well, and most... Plants that exist exist because of bees pollinating them. Otherwise, they we'd be have much less variety of of food. Yeah, and so for so for listeners who can't possibly mm. experience this right now, 
And I apologize since this is a very <laughs> you're only listening this is to like what a eating. curse. Like yeah. ha-ha. <laughs> this is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the first one. Yeah. Mm. So I'm just gonna describe this one. I would say it's uh, very aromatic. It smells almost like perfume a little bit. Um, yeah. And yeah. and it's it's a little bit more cloudy, but it's it's got it's got mm. personality. I would say. And it's, That's good. It's different it's from what I'm used to. It's got a good like sub- substantial yeah. feel. So who pasteurizes honey? Is this um, typical honey in a grocery of, store is pasteurized? Um, you can look at the label. It, it's it's been common in, in throughout the history of, yeah. of um, sort of industrialization of honey. Um, it kills the microbes, um, which is not really necessary yeah. because honey is antimicrobial. It's been used to treat wounds. Um, oh, yeah, throughout history, actually, yeah, yeah I'm, um, I've I've read the same. I know that, for example, for arrow wounds, one of the things that they would recommend would be a honey salve. They would use honey to like patch you up. Yeah. Um, as uh, I guess, just before bandages were a thing that you could actually use and were clean. You know, yeah. in, the, in one of the beautiful things about working with honey and and you know starting a company around honey is that honey doesn't expire. Yeah. Um, really. But so, it does crystallize. So if it crystallizes, what would you do to bring it back to the state you're used to? I can put it in warm water, and it will uh, liquefy. Yeah. Hmm. They found honey that's thousands of years old, and it's still edible. Yeah, they found it in the Egyptian tombs. So Luis mm. is trying the second lightest. This is even more. This is a red aromatic. bamboo. Uh, this looks like amber. This is from Carlisle, Mass. Um, okay. And this is a monofloral. It's actually a Japanese knotweed, which is an invasive species from guess where Japan. We're currently recording this within uh, Questrom School of Business in Boston University, and. That's one of the reasons why we're so worried about spelling honey anywhere, because we're in a, in a team room. And one of the things we noticed when we first came into this room is the fact that whoever was here before us seems to have stolen all of the chairs in the building. <laughs> there are many are, chairs. We are surrounded by mountains of chairs. We I don't could... know what is happening. And there was monitors. like three TVs in here. We got a whiteboard. It's We have everything. <laughs> I'm very confused as to what happened. Maybe they were in mod three doing something. Uh, but anyway. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. that's a really wonderful... Almost a, a lighter honey, not as sweet as the first. Yeah. I like that. It's a beautiful honey. And it's um, Japanese. Yes, mo- well, so it's from Carlisle. But, oh, it's from Carlisle. But the bees are foraging on a Japanese knotweed, which is invasive. Okay. And, um, so uh, yeah. uh, tell me a little bit, because I'm, I'm very curious about this, and I've been meaning to ask since basically you got here. What is the state of the science and the impact of colony collapse disorder on your business? I think it's bringing more awareness to people around honeybees, um, the importance of honeybees as pollinators of yeah. our food. And it's, you know, people coming in, they, they ask about that. Um, so before so it's, we... it's raising awareness about bees, I think, actually, which is very important. Um, yeah. As, as bees provide massive, you know, pollination of, to, to massive quantities of food for us. I mean, all of our flowering fruits and nuts. Well, okay, for I'm from California, from the Central Valley, Davis, um, but 90% of the world's almond exports come from California yeah, and that's hundreds yeah. of billions of dollars yeah. in the industry. Well, what's pollinating them? So truckloads of bees are coming in and being dropped in these, in these orchards to pollinate these almonds. And could it's, you describe pollinating collapse disorder to our listeners who might not be aware? Anecdotally, I can describe it because the evidence on this is thin. Um, and a lot of that is, <laughs> I mean, I have a feeling that I know what it is, and there's more longer-term studies coming out yeah. to point us in directions that it's really neonicotinoids 
which are used in certain pesticides as crop protectors for um, pests. Yeah. And that bees foraging in the same areas are also becoming exposed. And what a neonicotinoid does is it disrupts the nervous system of the bees, causing the eventual, well, confusion and eventual collapse of the colony, disappearance and death. Um, so the larger companies will say that it's these, that the ones, you know, making these pesticides and putting neonicotinoids in them will often drop well it's the changing climate it's yeah. human impact it's you go down the list of potential impacts and you can say well you know what maybe those do have an impact on it to there some was, degree but I, to what degree you yeah know? and so there's longer term studies that are coming out and actually now starting to point uh, more conclusively at, at you know neonicotinoids having a role a stronger role than some of these other factors so basically you're bringing in these bees they pollinate an area but the problem is that they're pollinating things that have been sprayed with a chemical well, that eventually kills the bee them. And, well and that's the, the theory at least and right. the larger issue yeah. actually is that you're bringing these pesticides into areas where there are native bee populations yes. right um so when i talk about local honey i'm talking about local to the area from which it's coming whereas right. the pollination that's happening in and this is really kind of the industrial level back to what you were asking, what am I getting in the store? Sometimes it's, you know, these trucks going around the country and collecting, you know, bees collecting and pollinating these different orchards um, or whatever, or, or other flowering fruit trees. And then all that is being mixed together. So and, it's and several types of honey. Yeah. Being just, just being gathered, mixed industrially, mm -hmm. and then just offered up as general clover honey. Yeah, so that's where a bulk of honey comes from. In other okay. senses, if it's coming from different countries, and this is really a, a key part of all the honey, is to make sure that we are giving credit back to the countries, the regions, the villages, the beekeepers, and the florals that, that this honey is coming from. Whereas, and, and so in a lot of these developing countries, um, beekeepers don't have a market for their honey. So they are left open for exploitation by people coming around looking to buy up cheap honey and then send it out to other countries and then resell it, repack yeah. it, resell right. it. Or resell it with it. as a parquet product saying, you know, it's a yeah. high grade Water honey. It down or mix it with corn yeah. syrup or XYZ. So. so I never knew that honey was mixed, like the types of honey were mixed. And I'm looking online and it seems that in the finer honeys, they try to keep certain types separate. So they have, for example, the fine ones kept separate, the sour wood honeys. So sourwood honey uh, from like a stronger sourwood bloom would be kept separate. So well, it's just interesting here, to see. For example, see. This, this, yeah. this is a beautiful honey from... So just before we go on and we taste another another one of these wonderful honeys, let's bring in our other co-host, Ray Dogum, who has just arrived. Welcome, Ray. Ray. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bienvenue. Sorry I was a little late here, but... Uh, You've missed a it. wonderful conversation about honey and uh, just... The impact of uh, civilization on this interesting and fascinating industry. But you didn't miss the whole thing. We're only there halfway through the honey. So you so actually honey is still you have more honey to try. The honey is still flowing. And he can catch up. <laughs> so actually, what you're talking about, these unique honeys, and, and you know, follow the honey's role in giving credit, keeping the integrity and the narrative behind those honeys. Um, here's a, a honey from, from Louisiana, from one of the largest protected bayous in the U.S. This is a Tupelo honey. You may have heard like Van Morrison singing about sweet as Tupelo honey at points, but this is a reference to this <laughs> We'll honey. put a link on the yeah. uh, website to the song. This is a smooth, smooth honey. It's and beautiful. I'll point out that the honey is uh, a, a reddish color. Ooh, it's very so, thin and it's dripping. Yeah, it's, it, this one drips a lot faster than Not the uh, other ones that we had. Well, Tupelo crystallizes Whoa. much slower 
Really? Some say it never crystallizes. Seriously. I have to disagree, but... It, wow, it it's just on. like, it's smooth and buttery. It's buttery. Buttery, honey. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's definitely agree. slippery. This could yeah. be, you know, I, I like... Wow. It feels more processed, but it isn't. So it's... it's it, it doesn't it, feel it, processed. Process, it's that's like, not the word, um, yeah. fine. Fine, Trust. that's the word. It's fine. Yeah, that's it, that's What's it. it? That's what I was looking for. This is a Tupelo, it's, well, Atchafalaya Tupelo from the Bayes. And it's got a green hint to it. Call number two. Yes, it it's does. It's got a, ve a vegetable hint to mm -hmm. it, which I, I actually kind of like. I love it. And this is from Avery Allen, a uh, beekeeper that we've also been working with uh, since our early days, um, who came into the shop on National Honey Bee Day, I think in 2011 or 2012. Was it the opening day? Anyway, um, I wasn't around for that, but we've carried his honey exclusively since then. Um, did, did, did everyone get a taste? I believe I we all got a taste. Got and actually, this this whole conversation about honey is very interesting, especially and even with the going into the colony collapse store and everything. There's a lot of different industries that have been disrupted by changes to the climate or changes uh, due to pollution, etc. For example, I know that chocolate is currently going to be going through a bit of a. It's going to get turned upside down because the conditions for actually growing chocolate effectively is generally in a very limited zone of the planet that you can actually grow it and that zone is shrinking due to climate change so the prices of chocolate are actually going to be going up over the next few years and certain types of chocolate because i know just, that well, cacao beans are sourced from many different regions but that's what i mean the cacao bean itself is going to be coming uh, no matter where scarce. in the world it comes from well because they're grown in very limited locations even mm -hmm. if it's different places in the world it's generally in the same belt uh, huh. of the world okay um and well, similarly Honey is one such product, and I think we need to support uh, local honey farmers because, and you know, small honey farmers, because so that the industry can continue going. Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned cacao, um, because this this is looking actually not just at honey, but the honeybee and the people who take care of the honeybees and those folks as a platform for providing high quality food to our planet. Um, and what's pollinating the coffee and the cacao and the mangoes mm. and the avocados? Well. In a lot of cases, honeybees, you know, so um, bees are instrumental and vital to the ecosystems that we live in, the, the trees that grow and, and, and cross-pollination of trees and seed and water that, that allow, you know, our planet to, to grow. Um, so I think, you know, honey has been, a, it's been a wonderful world so far and I'm excited to get deeper into it, really, especially in cross-pollination with other sectors that are actually tied together by the honeybee. Hmm. Um, and that's what we've been working on in Tanzania, which brings us to the next honey, Tanzania Asali. Uh, this is what I was spending my summer. Um, that one looks a bit more viscous there. Working to get a very uh, dark, honey. very dark, smoky, almost like molasses. You guys can describe it. <laughs> I won't give you the. We should have had the pro the describing it. <laughs> I won't put the words will, in your mouth. I will but. agree. It, it is actually the. Most unusual oh. tasting of all the honeys, I'd say. It's the one that I, when I think of the taste of honey, this is the one that goes the most against that. But it's wow. different in a good way. Tastes like bacon. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I would say so. Bacon, maybe a little bit of maple. Yeah, so if you don't eat bacon, yeah. maple syrup, you know, you can, you can come have What bacon. if, oh, if yeah. you can't <laughs> eat bacon? I but this, this is, bacon this is from the Miombo Blossom. So th that smoke... That smoky profile is actually derived from the blossom of this flower, this miombo blossom, which is native to Tanzania and much of Africa. Um, so when they use so, smoke to calm bees down, for example, that doesn't affect the taste of the honey. No, not unless, not unless they're 
over smoking the hive regularly. Okay. Um, if you like, if it's like if you put a, something in a smoker, you know, then then yes. But if you are smoking the bees and then you're opening up to ventilate it, which is normal practice, then no, it, it won't have hmm. an impact. So I'm gonna stop us here for now, so we can take a small commercial break. So we're gonna be right back after a word from our sponsors, and. I look forward to uh, tasting more honey in the future. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian, for coming and educating us about bees and about Follow the Honey, which is located in Cambridge, and I love passing by and seeing the products. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this wonderful podcast. I'm Brian Warner, Chief of Operations for Follow the Honey, Inc., our Harvard human rights honey company. And I would love to welcome you to come to a full honey tasting anytime you like, uh, 11 to 7 daily, 12 to 5 on Sundays. We have over 30 honeys there. We have honeys on tap so you can bring your jar and come get some honey for your honey. Beeswax candles, creams, lip balms. It's a beautiful space. 1132 Mass Ave. Uh, as it gets warmer, we also have a nectar deck in back with a beehive. Um, so it's, it's really sort of a place to hive mind. Welcome back to PFL Podcast after the commercial break with Brian on Follow the Honey. It's great to talk about bees and honey in general. And uh, we actually have an insight about a new collaboration Follow the Honey is doing with BU. Luis, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, Brian told us right before he left that he, they are now collaborating with the Buzz Lab. Uh, so Follow the Honey and the Buzz Lab are working together. So they're going to be giving guests this, this honey product as uh, thank you gifts, and they're going to be. And I think a, it's going to be good business. I think it's a pretty cool collaboration, just because of the name, yeah. the Buzz Lab. You can imagine it's also called the Hive. We have a lot of accelerator, so yeah. it's a really nice. I think BU's produced. I think too many uh, bee-related companies at this point. I mean, Stephanie herself, <laughs> our co-host here, has a company called Apiarity. So with a logo that is also bee related. So there's a lot of bee stuff going on around BU. That's I think true. that's going to be, that might be the unofficial mascot of the Questrom School <laughs> uh, well, business. What I like about bees is the symbolism of hard work and diligence, you know, in medieval her heraldry. In medieval heraldry, <laughs> the bee was What is a medieval herald heraldry? Heraldry. <laughs> that's yeah. a hard word to say. It's the... Uh, the shields that you make for your family crest. Yeah, like, okay. And there are very specific rules about it. Like, if you have certain animals, it means these things. If you have a field uh, versus a uh, mountain or whatever, it right. means these things. And the stripes have to be going a certain way to denote another thing. Exactly. Right. So or you went air, you know, that sort of thing. So I attended Harvard, and every Harvard house has a shield... Right. With symbolism on it that means certain things, yeah. and yeah. in fact, if you get knighted, you you get to choose your your new uh, crest. So I know uh, Terry Pratchett, who was who I've been a long time reader of and passed away a year ago um, or two years ago at this point. Uh, he also got to make his own crest uh, right after being knighted for you know literary achievements. Wow, Louis, if you were knighted, what would your crest look like? What would you? <laughs> It would have a jellyfish. A jellyfish. A jellyfish. What jellyfish would that represent? Me out. A particularly, the particularly the immortal jellyfish. The immortal jellyfish. That, what is that? Something I should. You, uh, are you not familiar with it? So um, I don't. I don't know the new scientific name for it because they they changed it. But it used to be called uh, Turritopsis nutricula. Basically, it's a jellyfish that has the ability to once it reaches sexual maturity, it can go back to being a polyp, which is basically like imagine that when mm. you get to be beyond. 12 years old, 
you can choose to go back to being a baby. Infinitely. As long as you have, as long as nothing kills you, like a cocoon, you will live basically forever. Yeah. Is it really the same organism going back to that state, or yeah, is it it's almost morphing into a new being of sorts? Um, it, I think I don't know exactly. I think for a human, that would be more like you're becoming a new being, mostly because if you go back to being a baby and your brain has to be rewired as a result, are you still you? Right. Because a baby's brain stage is very different, but for a medusa or a jellyfish of any sort i don't think there's that a brain we can going consider, on <laughs> yeah i don't think that's really a much much of an issue so i think it's more it's still the same creature and it'll continue being that same creature unless you know either it runs out of food or it gets poisoned by something or it gets eaten by an animal so it's not like they're immune but hmm. yeah it's it's uh, one of the examples of a f one of the few immortal creatures out there also lobsters Lobsters can basically live almost forever. They just keep getting bigger. Really? Yeah. So these these animals really have like this in infinite lifespan. So I'm looking at like the western honeybee looks like it lives less than a year. Yeah. Well, there's animals that live like a day. And right. there's animals that live hundreds of years. I mean, we know turtles that live for very long time. Right. And, you know, obviously there's organisms that have been around since for thousands of years. There's certain trees that are, that have been around, like, not just trees, but groups of trees that are all linked together like biologically. They're all like one massive infrastructure organism, right. of an organism that has been around for thousands of years. And, you know, those are things. Also, I find it fascinating, the, the fungi. Um, oh, they go for miles. Th they can go for miles and it's like underground. So it's very interesting yeah. to, to see that. It's also fascinating how much these organisms take to to be what they are. So I have this hydroponic arrow garden that my in-laws gave us in our house. What it's do you amazing. Grow? And I grow like mint and basil and thyme. Mint is the easiest thing to grow. It's right. great. They just right. it just doesn't fail. But they have their roots in the water and it's amazing to see how much water they consume. Oh yeah. Sometimes they beat me out for how much water they've had to drink in a day, and I'm like embarrassed for my <laughs> low water consumption. <laughs> These mints are drinking more than you are. Yeah, and they're That's... little, so you think this. I mean, they are taking more water than they usually would because they're receiving that light that. Plus, you know, don't it's a forget, there's I mean, a lot that's... of water that gets evaporated. Too. Yeah, I mean, that's right. also how they basically all make food and you know uh, that's they, they use the water to basically survive in a way Don't that too? <laughs> yes but a little differently i think yeah. that the way that they they use water is a little different from human right. or really really animals although yeah i definitely agree that that's still insane that they consume more water than you i'm trying to drink more yeah but remember that a lot of the water that the humans actually i mean general animals actually consume comes from food we make water when we consume food it's just that the amount of water we make is not really enough to satisfy the organism. So you do right. actually have more water. It's just you don't see it. We would probably consume more water if we just ate more vegetables. But as we eat more and more processed foods, those foods contain less water. Right. Most of the processed foods we eat basically are dehydrated. Chips and like baked goods, there's very little water. See, I, I think that uh, processing, I think that processing, processing food gets a bad rap. Uh, Brian earlier mentioned uh, pasteurization as one method, and that's a method of uh, processing a food that saves, you know, countless amount of countless amounts of lives and product. So a lot of resources would be lost if we didn't pasteurize, for example, milk. 
which would go right. back in the drop of a hat. Uh, but now, because it's pasteurized, can go. We you can, can keep it for send weeks. It places. Yeah, and yeah. you can have it be safe to drink for a long, long time. I right, but I think milk is <laughs> but, not overly processed. We're talking about like very processed, you know, frozen like a cheeseburger foods. That, or something. But yeah. how do you define too much processing? When you add, when you add new ingredients that preserves the chemical substrates inside the food in order for it not to break down. So when you're adding something, so when you're pasteurizing, you're not actually, you might be adding vitamin D, but the only pa the part that's pasteurizing is when you're like boiling the milk, isn't that right? I mean, yeah, generally pasteurization is a process of heating and cooling, yeah, yeah. that's the main thing. I think that um, there is a knee-jerk reaction that humans have, that anything that is not natural is bad, and I disagree with that. Uh, don't because, get me wrong, I eat McDonald's. No, I no, I, I know, but I'm saying that, that the idea that things that are not quote-unquote natural are inherently worse than their natural versions. And I disagree with that wholly. Because, for example, clothes are not natural, but they help us not die in the cold. Similarly, a constructed apartment building is not natural, but we reap great benefits from it. And I think the same stands for food. I mean, it's the whole panic around GMOs that have had no data showing any problems with them, and they help maintain the world fed far more effectively than we could have ever done 100 years ago or 200 years ago. The stigma is this idea that it, it's just not natural. And I think we even had this conversation at home where we thought, are hydroponically grown plants, you know, because it's not sunshine, it's an LED light, are they okay for you? It's the, your, your knee-jerk reaction is, is it okay if it's not natural? But you're right, there are a lot of, of things we do that are, are manufactured in a way... Think of the clothes we wear that have polyester blends. Yeah. You know, that make it possible for us to not have to gather necessarily 100% cotton if we don't want to. Yeah. And think about that about this way. The way I see our use of quote-unquote unnatural ingredients is that our evolutionary advantages as humans are a few, right? We're not the strongest. We're not the fastest. We don't have the best claws <laughs> or ability or the best senses. But we do have the ability to cooperate and to pass down knowledge. And this has allowed us to take control of the natural realm and make differences to our environment to a degree that it really benefits us the most possible. Some of these changes could can be very damaging to the environment and can be ultimately really bad for us, as we see with climate change. But a lot of these other things, humans are so separate from the way we used to live originally that if you were to go back to, if you were to try to go back to living that way, it would be nearly unfathomable for a person with modern education, skills, etc. Because it's such a completely different lifestyle. And we try to like reach it in some ways or another. People try to change their diets and do these things. But these are all half measures. And there's a reason... They're also based on, on branding, diet branding. Yeah. So you, sometimes if you want to take on a certain diet, like a meatless diet or whatever, you have to buy products... From a certain company. From a certain yeah. company... I mean, meatless is easy. You eat vegetables, <laughs> eat beans. But, you know, there are other diets where you but really that's do. But that's part of the problem, though, isn't it? Because ancient humans did not have access to all of these vegetables. They didn't have access to all of these things. We The, the fact that you can say, I'm going to go back to living the way that people used to live from the beginning, it's insane. You can't. I mean, at least not with any form of right. comfort. I agree. So that brings up an interesting point. And I think the question here is, so are human beings part of nature? Or are they kind of 
separate from nature now because we're affecting it. So in that case, all the coal that we're burning, all the um, unrecycled material that goes in the trash, that's just part of nature because we mm -hmm. are a construct of nature. So Every, in effect, that anything that we do... Everything in this world is nature. Yeah. Right. That's what you're getting at. Everything right? is natural. That's what I'm saying. So. so if we evolve in a certain way or use materials in a specific way, it's the same as if any animal makes... I mean, birds make nests out of by breaking twigs off of trees. Are they destroying the environment by breaking these I mean, twigs? beavers right. make dams and that affects their local environment. The, the main thing is, though, we are creatures that have used our evolutionary advantage, which as every creature does, to change the environment around us, because that's what we can do as a species. So I think that everything that we've done is natural, because that is what we are predisposed to doing. That being said, we're also creatures that have an understanding of what impact we are having on the local environment, and it is up to us to try to mitigate those negative effects that we have. Right, there's... there's the cognitive, this goes back to the jellyfish, does it have a brain, you know? Yeah. And the fact that we have a, a big enough brain that processes in a way that makes us responsible in some way, socially responsible. So not only are we evolving and adapting to our environment, you know, we're making our houses out of the wood the same way the beavers are, mm -hmm. but then are we putting pollutants into the, into the atmosphere to a higher degree than we really need to? So where is the line between you know, survival and even comfort and, and living in the earth the way you would like to versus where, when do you cross that line into destroying the environment and when do you feel responsible for that? And the other question is, should you feel responsible for that? Because uh, while I feel that you should, you could make an argument that because all life on earth is, you know, evolved in a certain way and all have followed a certain, you know, whatever is biologically their imperative including humans yeah okay. are we not just fulfilling our biological imperative by doing what's best for us as humans and shouldn't we continue to do that i mean the earth is more hardy than we give it credit for even if with global warming even if things go terribly south and we destroy ourselves it's very likely the earth will survive and there will be new species that come out of the hellfire it's unlikely we're ever going to truly kill the earth we're more likely to kill ourselves before we kill the earth. <laughs> At least in our right. own foreseen life. Yeah. There will be life. It may not be cute life. We may not see puppies running around. We're probably going to see just a lot of bacteria if we, like, make the world into glass by just, like, nuking everything. But there will still be life for the m most likely mm -hmm. scenario. What kind of a, a life are we creating and what beauty are we creating beyond short-term survival and comfort? And when does it become a socially responsible consideration? Yes. And that's hard. I mean, that's really hard at, a, at even a micro level where I have to determine, do I use this product or not? Do I support this company or not? Yeah. And this is a really new yeah. kind of thing that we have to grapple with. That hasn't been something humans have thought about, you know, two, three hundred years ago. This was not a, a yeah. really a conscious I think effort that we took upon. This wasn't a big deal, you know, oh, it'll be fine. All the nuclear, all the waste—not nuclear, but probably chemical waste—that we manufacture. It's just you know going in the lake over here. It's, it's not yeah. a big deal. Right. No, I agree. I think I think that even though environmental impact has affected humans for since the beginning of civilization. I mean, the, I, one of the, the, the theories volumes. I've read, right. one of the theories I read for the disappearance of the Mayans and the Indus Valley civilization is that they affected their local environment so negatively that they could no longer subs exist. They basically destroy themselves through damage to their environment. Fascinating. But that's just we theory. We should be able to learn right. from these 
civilization's mistakes, right? Well, I mean, that's also a factor of technology and improvements to our ability to provide for ourselves while minimizing our impact. Um, but even these older civilizations didn't, I don't think, had a much about a concept of why things were going wrong. Generally speaking, throughout history, we just thought, oh, now we have a crop, we have crop failures because gods. Right. That's a good so, point. It's now that we have an understanding of what's happening, we have a responsibility to try to do something about it. Um, I feel, though, that at this point, Captain Planet should, like, fly in and give a message to the kids, because we've been talking about awareness <laughs> yeah. for a while. So this has been uh, a good way to end, you know, thinking about bees and going into our ecosystem as a whole. Having a guest uh, like Brian has been really interesting. We got to taste some honey today. So thanks again for listening. Visit pflpodcast.com right. and definitely and, give us uh, your thoughts and comments. And uh, one more thing I'd like to add. Uh, we talked about bees and I want to talk to you guys about a plant, a cannabis or marijuana plant. Um, there's an event going on on February 22nd at Questroom School Business in the auditorium. At 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m., we have uh, leaders from the cannabis industry coming in to talk about what are some entrepreneurial efforts that are going on, what are some struggles, some challenges in the industry, and how you can uh, learn more about um, the marijuana industry overall. So if you're, if any of our listeners are in the Boston area and would like to learn a little bit more about the, the growing cannabis industry, which is likely to be it, and it, very impactful in the near future, uh, please come down to Boston University Question School of Business and listen to uh, this wonderful talk. Right. And the Eventbrite link is cannabispanel.eventbrite.com. We'll put it on the website. And bef- and listen to our drugs and violence episode if you want to have uh, some background for some of this information. So it's thank you four, very right? much. Yeah, episode, episode four. four. Yeah. All right. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, this has been Positive Feedback Loop. Stay crazy. Stay crazy, guys.